the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abuse, self-harm, sexual violence, assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was Elaine O'Hara's last night at St. Edmundsbury Hospital, and she seemed distressed. Nurse Rosetta Callan sat down on the edge of Elaine's bed, patiently waiting for her to open up. Usually, Elaine was a private person, but something was different about that night. She finally told Rosetta something she hadn't even shared with her doctors. She said she was being harassed by a man. The situation was complicated to say the least, though Elaine was sure to keep the details vague. The conversation carried on for 45 minutes. Rosetta managed to cheer Elaine up a bit. She was laughing when they finally said goodbye. As the nurse walked down the hallway, she thought about how far Elaine had come since her first stay at the hospital. But the minute Rosetta left the room, Elaine pulled out a prepaid mobile phone and checked her text messages. Graham Dwyer had a new punishment in mind, one that would be much worse than their regular games. This time, he really wanted to hurt her. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we discussed the beginning of Elaine O'Hara and Graham Dwyer's twisted relationship, as well as the abusive games he played to keep her in his grasp. By the time Elaine managed to leave him, Graham had left permanent scars, emotional and physical. This week, we'll watch them reunite. Over time, Graham steers them both toward a tragic end. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? 
Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Thirty-five-year-old Elaine O'Hara walked into the busy Dublin market and scanned the crowd for a head of close-cropped brown hair. Even after all their time apart, she could never forget the face of Graham Dwyer, the man who had caused her so much pain. She'd only agreed to meet him on the condition that they didn't renew their relationship. She had no idea what her old abuser had in store. She may have even believed his text messages in which he promised he would commit to making her more comfortable. Elaine wondered if maybe after all this time, he'd changed. And in fact, Graham had changed for the worse. After Elaine left him, Graham had run into some hard times. His wife, Gemma, lost her job and his firm severely cut his pay. The couple struggled to support their children and fell into debt. To deal with the stress of keeping his family afloat, Graham started at least three different affairs. One of them was with Darcy, an American around 20 years old whom he'd met online. Darcy struggled with her mental health. Much like Elaine, she had low self-esteem and displayed suicidal tendencies. And also like Elaine, she'd asked Graham to flat out kill her. Over email, Graham and Darcy mused about how he might murder her, but fortunately, they never met in person. By spring of 2011, their relationship had fizzled out, but Graham remained obsessed with the idea of murdering a woman. He wrote a detailed description of the violent scheme he was never able to carry out with Darcy. He'd planned to greet her at the Dublin airport, then take her to a remote cabin in the Irish countryside. There, Graham would carry out a series of sexually violent acts before killing Darcy once and for all. He even hatched a plan to cover up the crime. He was going to throw Darcy's clothes and laptop over a cliff, hoping to pass it off as a suicide. He wrote similar stories about other women in his life, everyone from complete strangers to Elaine herself. To match the stories, he photoshopped pictures of women to look like murder victims. Before I dive into Graham's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Last week, we mentioned that Graham's sexual obsession with knives could have indicated that he was a peakerist. That would mean stabbing was more of a compulsion than a fetish, something beyond his control. But by this point in his life, it seemed like he'd grown beyond peakerism. His fantasies indicated a drive to commit murders for sexual satisfaction. This disorder is called erotophonophilia. According to the American Psychiatric Association, erotophonophilia is a paraphilic disorder. It's the driving force behind many so-called lust murders. Psychologist and criminologist Bruce A. Arrigo and Catherine E. Purcell argue that fantasies like Graham's are the first sign of a budding lust murderer. People with erotophonophilia become obsessed, 
Eventually, they're unable to achieve sexual satisfaction through daydreaming alone. They have to bring their dark fantasies into reality. And that's exactly what Graham wanted more than anything. Back at the Dublin market, Graham smiled as Elaine approached. Everything was going according to plan. For Elaine, Graham's face probably triggered a flurry of emotions, but he was smooth. Elaine had always kept a wall between herself and others, even with her therapists. There was a dark part of her psyche she refused to show to anyone. Only one person had ever seen it before, and Graham knew it. Bit by bit, he broke down that barrier. He won her over with sweet words and empty promises, warming his way back into her mind. By the end of the conversation, Graham convinced Elaine to resume their relationship. She even bought a prepaid burner phone to match his own. They saved each other's names as master and slave. It was all downhill from there. To lull her into a false sense of security, Graham once again promised to keep his knife fetish to himself. For a while, they stuck to more standard BDSM fare like chains and cuffs, the stuff of Elaine's fantasy. In a healthy BDSM relationship, Graham never would have gone farther than what they'd both agreed to, but he wasn't interested in a healthy relationship. One day, while Elaine was in restraints, he withdrew a long, sharp, and very real knife. He poked it into her flesh, drawing blood and screams of pain. Whenever Elaine protested, Graham reminded her that he was the only one who could satisfy her desires. He was back in control. Whether or not they went beyond her comfort level was up to him. From that point on, things were just as bad as they'd been two years before, if not worse. The people who loved Elaine always encouraged her to seek out help for her depression, but Graham did the exact opposite. Instead, he defined her by her symptoms, never missing an opportunity to bring them up in conversation. By normalizing her self-loathing, he made it seem like depression was her natural state. But on some level, Elaine must have understood she was being manipulated. She made several attempts to assert herself and stand her ground. Graham's controlling behavior made it hard to talk about any of this in person. Elaine felt safer over text, but her efforts were wasted on Graham. All he had to do was go a few minutes without responding, and Elaine would fold. She'd apologize and walk back her complaints. Things went on like this for a few terrible months, but everyone has their breaking point. Elaine reached hers that August when she finally told Graham enough was enough. She let him know that he wasn't allowed to stab her anymore. If he couldn't respect her boundaries, he'd have to find an outlet for his bloodlust. Graham responded with his usual manipulation tactics, but they didn't work this time. Elaine stood her ground and even made another demand. She'd always loved kids. That's why she pursued a career as a teacher. She wanted one of her own someday, but if that was ever going to happen, it had to be soon. She wanted Graham to get her pregnant. Graham couldn't afford another child any more than Elaine could, 
so he did his best to move past it, but she wouldn't budge. If there was one thing she wanted for her life, this was it. After sending such a risky message, she tightly gripped her phone. It took everything in her not to turn around and text back an apology. Finally, Graham relented. He said he would give her a child, but he had just one thing to ask in return. Coming up, Graham pushes Elaine into unthinkable territory. Rice, let me paint a picture for you, E. Yeah, I'm going to set the scene. This is the bit that I like. Right, okay, go for it. It's a beautiful Saturday in early July 2001. Do you remember back about 21 years ago? I remember 2001 fondly. Okay, well, imagine that time, but we're in Germany. So, guten Tag. Guten Tag. There's this university in the city of Witten. It's high summer. It's really incredibly hot. The students, the locals, they're out. They're enjoying the sun. They're getting their tan on. But behind the door of a small one-bedroom apartment, things couldn't be more different. Darkness, (gasps) death, (sighs) and destruction lurk inside. And unaware of what they are about to walk into, the local Witten police squad are trying to get in. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. What are you doing? I'm doing like the sound effects. That's the police coming into the... You know, we this is like a big podcast. We can actually like get proper sound effects in. Right, okay. Let's just do that then. There's no answer. <gasps> and as the officers force their way indoors... That's not a force sound. That's a squeaky door. That's you taking a shit sound. It sounds like a tricky poo, doesn't it? That's not why I, I don't sound like that when I do a tricky poo, <laughs> to be very clear. So they break down the door. Badoosh! They're greeted with a scene straight out of a gothic horror novel. Here we go. The apartment is almost pitch black. The officers have to squint as they make their way down the corridor, reluctantly groping the walls to keep from tripping over. They inch their way towards a door at the end of the corridor, not knowing what they are about to be greeted with. They creep towards the bedroom. It's as dark as the corridor. An officer pulls back one of the blackout curtains and the first thing to catch their eye is a full-size coffin laying on the floor. A coffin? Yeah, a coffin. The entire apartment is painted black and in the living room, cemetery lights illuminate an altar fashioned from fake human skulls. So this is the bit when it gets really messed up. In the middle of all of it, there's a body. No way. So the body, the victim has been stabbed 66 times and a pentagram has been cut into the stomach. There's a message smeared in blood on the window when Satan lives. This is seriously dark stuff. Totally. And it's about to get a whole lot darker. That was the last sound effect. From Spotify, I'm Laura Whitmore. And I'm Ian Sterling. This is Partners in Crime. Every week we rifle through the case files of some of the most infamous, fascinating and bizarre crimes in history. So if, like us, your perfect date night involves turning down the lights real low, cozying up on the sofa and delving into the depraved minds of some seriously messed up criminals, you're very much in the right place. Welcome to episode one, The Vampire Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In August 2011, Elaine O'Hara finally stood up to Graham Dwyer, She gave him an ultimatum. Either he got her pregnant, or he'd have to satisfy his violent fantasies with someone else. After some pushback, Graham acquiesced, but he had a condition of his own. Graham told Elaine that she'd have to earn the baby by helping him murder a random woman. He called it a life for a life. It was such a horrific suggestion that Elaine probably thought it was a joke or another dark fantasy. She accepted the deal, thinking it was probably fake anyway. The texts continued to pour in, as they always did whenever Graham was excited. He didn't have anyone particular in mind. Any woman would do. He suggested one of Elaine's neighbors, but since she had two children, Elaine shot it down. Instead, Elaine offered up her own sister, as they'd never really gotten along. Eager to please, she typed out Anne's home address and hit send. But when Graham started to plot out the details of the murder, Elaine quickly backtracked. She hastily typed out, just kidding. Graham let it slide, but sensing her trepidation, he reminded Elaine that it was too late to back out. She'd already accepted the deal. The existence of her child depended on her cooperation, and if she couldn't find someone to kill, she might become the victim instead. Graham claimed her desire for death had ignited his urge to kill in the first place. Only she could help him satisfy his urges. According to psychotherapist Darlene Lancer, one of the main goals of an expert manipulator like Graham is to avoid blame. In domestic violence cases, the abuser will often blame the victim for making them strike out in anger. By using this tactic, Graham implied that Elaine held some kind of power over him, making her responsible for his pleasure. He was the one who really held the power, but playing the victim was one way to keep Elaine under his control. And the strategy worked. Elaine played along, but she didn't offer any more sacrifices. Undeterred, Graham continued suggesting women, neighbors, co-workers, and perfect strangers. To Elaine, it must have seemed like he had a plan to kill every woman he met. Graham's desire to kill grew stronger by the minute. At one point, he even thought about reconnecting with Darcy and flying her in from Maine, but the logistics were too complicated. Finally, he settled on a real estate agent whose office was near his own. Her name was Rowena, and she happened to be showing a house nearby. Elaine warned that they were likely to be caught, but Graham believed he had a foolproof plan. He ordered Elaine to pose as a potential buyer and call the agent's office. She was to schedule an appointment and go to the empty house, where the pair would knock Rowena out with a hammer. Then Graham would assault her, and kill her with a knife. 
After that, they would go straight back to Elaine's apartment to conceive her long-awaited child. Elaine was horrified. The plan made the whole thing far too real. She didn't know if she could go along with it, but she couldn't face the consequences of failure either. Then, just before Graham pushed her to the tipping point, he suddenly dropped the subject. At least, he stopped insisting on going through with it. Elaine breathed a huge sigh of relief. She may have even wondered if it was all just a joke after all. But the next time she raised the topic of her baby, Graham reminded her that the life-for-a-life deal was still on. Evidently, Graham realized that actually going through with his plan wasn't as satisfying as holding it over Elaine's head. It was yet another way to keep her in his thrall. Elaine was crushed by the setback, and over the next year, her problems only grew. Despite the presence of a man in her life, she felt lonelier than ever and nowhere near ready to start a family of her own. Elaine only had a job as a childcare assistant, plus a part-time gig to support herself. She nursed a possible teaching career, which would improve her finances. But for over a decade, she'd been taking classes and courses she could hardly afford, with no career in sight. Her expensive treatment didn't help either. Her stays at St. Edmundsbury Hospital weren't cheap. Within two years, she had already spent nearly 8,500 euros on medication alone. In early 2012, her delicate financial situation worsened. She failed to pay her mortgage four months in a row, and by the summer, she was 4,000 euros in debt. Then, just when she felt like things couldn't get any worse, her poorly installed bathtub flooded her apartment. Since reuniting with Graham, Elaine had been living on a razor's edge. With this last indignity, she'd finally been pushed too far. She felt a familiar sinking feeling, a depression too deep to bear. For the first time in years, she made a plan to end her life. But thankfully, before she could commit the act, she had a moment of clarity and picked up the phone. For almost her entire life, St. Edmundsbury had been a safe space. The doctors and staff there were the closest thing she had to friends. Despite the cost, Elaine knew the hospital was exactly where she needed to be and arranged to check in for the following morning. But she was still in a fragile frame of mind for the rest of that night. In her loneliness, she struggled to think of who she could reach out to. Graham would be of no use, if anything, he'd be angry that she thought about ending her life without him. Instead, she called her father. Frank O'Hara was both saddened and surprised by the news that things had gotten so bad for Elaine. He spoke with his daughter every day and thought she had been doing well. Her care team had a similar reaction, including her psychiatrist, who'd been slowly lowering her dosages of medication. But still... Everyone understood that Elaine's decision to call the hospital was a good sign. And as promised, she checked into St. Edmundsbury early on July 14, 2012. Slowly, she began the arduous process of recovering some of the confidence Graham had stolen from her. After a few weeks, she started to feel better, 
and doctors allowed her to check out on weekends. She resumed part-time work at her newsstand, which took her mind off her troubles. Around this time, she learned that a sailing event called the Tall Ships Festival was stopping in Dublin for the first time in over a decade. When she heard they were looking for volunteers, she jumped at the chance and was even appointed a team leader. The event was later that month and she took the appropriate days off work. Feeling better, she even managed to convince her doctors to schedule her release a few days before the festival. Her excitement rubbed off on the St. Edmundsbury staff. It was a rare and special thing to see Elaine so full of life. But she hadn't told them everything. She'd snuck her second phone into the hospital and was still texting Graham whenever she could. Just as she'd suspected, Graham was furious when he found out she was being cared for. Rather than showing concern for her safety, he berated her for being sexually unavailable while she was in the hospital. Graham believed Elaine had already promised her life to him. He felt it was his right to take it from her and his alone. He couldn't cope with the idea of losing Elaine unless it was by his own hand. So, he offered her a series of punishments and let her choose one. He could either whip her, choke her until she was unconscious, leave her chained up overnight in a forest, or stab her while they had sex. Elaine went with the devil she knew. She chose stabbing. Though Elaine anticipated the Tall Ships Festival, she dreaded her upcoming punishment. Graham told her the plan, the day she got out, she was supposed to walk deep into the forest, far from civilization, where her screams would be muffled by the thick greenery. He didn't give her any more details, letting her imagination run wild from there. As Graham hoped, Elaine was utterly terrified at the idea of doing it in the woods. She knew Graham might lose control and go too far, but it was the only way to maintain the central relationship in her life. So she went along with it. By August 22nd, massive wooden ships had already begun to arrive in Dublin. They would be setting off again in a few days and Elaine would be there to see it all. As she waited to meet with her counselor one last time, she tried to focus on her excitement. When her care team waved goodbye, they may have wondered if this was Elaine's last time at St. Edmundsbury. As far as anyone knew, she was doing better than ever. After leaving the hospital, Elaine went to see her father and niece. They shared a pleasant afternoon, though it was hard to wrench Elaine's attention away from her phone. She said goodbye around 4.30, claiming she had to rest up for the festival the next day. But she wasn't really expecting to get any rest that night. Later that evening, she made her way to the nearby Killikee Mountain. Somewhere in the woods, Graham was already waiting to inflict her punishment. After asking a jogger for directions, Elaine stepped onto the grass and slipped between the thick trees. As she looked for Graham among the shadows, she may have wondered if this punishment would be her last. Coming up, we'll hear the end of Graham Dwyer's twisted plan. Now, back to the story. 
On August 22, 2012, 36-year-old Elaine O'Hara walked out of St. Edmundsbury Hospital for the last time. That evening, she vanished into a nearby forest, never to be seen again. Over the next few days, Elaine's loved ones and co-workers tried to reach her to no avail. Her father, Frank, searched her apartment multiple times but couldn't find any clue about her whereabouts. She was just gone. A cold panic shot through Frank. He couldn't help but worry that Elaine might have ended her own life. Things seemed different this time, though. She'd never gone missing before. Irish police soon found Elaine's car parked near the woods, but a thorough search and rescue operation turned up no sign of her. They did, however, make some shocking discoveries in her apartment. The police were surprised to find logs of over 4,000 text messages on her computer hard drive. Unfortunately, the data was corrupted and incomprehensible. At this point, the general consensus was that Elaine had died by suicide, so the cops decided translating these files wasn't worth the time or resources required. Until Elaine's body was found, the authorities couldn't declare her dead, but after a while, the case stagnated. For a year, Graham scanned the headlines. To his relief, the papers made no mention of Elaine. It seemed like he had actually gotten away with it. In the summer of 2013, a group of fishermen walked along a reservoir not too far from Dublin. For months, the anglers had seen the water level get lower and lower as Ireland experienced its driest summer in years. Recently, some of the garbage that had fallen in years ago could be seen from the surface. As they walked along, one of the men noticed a piece of yellow rope with a metallic ring attached to one side. Out of sheer curiosity, he and his friends tried to fish it out of the water. It was heavier than they thought. Like a net, the yellow rope had caught a few discarded objects. The fishermen were confused and slightly embarrassed when they reeled in a stash of bondage gear, including handcuffs, a collar, and a ball gag. They brought their discovery to the police, and officers determined that whoever had thrown the items into the lake clearly had something to hide. Two days later, on Friday the 13th, a professional dog trainer walked her pet, Millie, through Killikey Mountain. With no warning, Millie shot through the trees, attracted to something hidden in the grass. The trainer waited for Millie to come back out, but she wouldn't stop digging. The trainer cautiously crept into the forest to see what had attracted her dog. The forest opened up into a grassy clearing, it would have been a picturesque, perfectly Irish sight, except for the bones peeking out of the ground. The trainer assumed they were animal bones, but a pair of sweatpants lying near the skeleton made her less than certain. Finding herself surrounded by trees and mysterious bones on the unluckiest day of the year, she made the wise decision to get out of there at once. But she couldn't get the discovery out of her mind, so she returned later that day with two friends. That's when they found a human jawbone and contacted the police. Dental records matched the remains to Elaine. Officers managed to recover most of Elaine's skeleton, 
but enough of it was missing to make her cause of death a mystery. It was still possible that she'd taken her own life, but now that there was a body, the police had to find out for sure. They renewed their investigation and looked through Elaine's apartment again. It had been sitting empty and undisturbed all year. This time, they took the bed sheets off her mattress and found patches of dried blood pooled around deep tears in the fabric. Stab marks. At the same time, data scientists finally unscrambled the texts found on Elaine's hard drive. They discovered that the most recent texts were dated from the very day of her disappearance, mere hours before she was last seen. In an abundance of caution, Elaine had backed up her texts with Graham, knowing how useful they would be if he ever went too far. From beyond the grave, she had just provided the key to solving her own murder. Graham had avoided using his actual name over text, but he couldn't help but share some details of his real life. For example, he once complained about coming in fifth in a model airplane competition. Police easily matched the date to local model airplane clubs and came across the name Graham Dwyer. From there, they started quietly building a case against him and back at the reservoir, police found even more evidence. They managed to recover two mobile phones and two knives, along with a pair of glasses and keys that were traced back to Elaine. Finally, on October 17th at 7 a.m., a pair of officers knocked on Graham Dwyer's door. He answered in his pajamas, claiming he didn't know why he was being detained. He'd been following the investigation in the newspaper, but since the press never reported him as a suspect, he probably believed he'd gotten away scot-free. At the station, Graham denied even knowing Elaine, which was easily disproved. When he was shown CCTV footage of himself outside her apartment, his story changed. He admitted he had known Elaine, but only platonically. He actually claimed he'd once saved her from a suicide attempt. The detective in charge of interrogating Graham put on a relaxed facade, asking about his activities between 2011 and 2012. Graham answered honestly, with no idea that the detective had practically memorized the text chain between him and Elaine. Once his questions had been answered, the detective revealed his ruse. All of Graham's answers matched up with the texts. He had just confirmed with absolute certainty that he was Elaine's secret partner. Graham completely clammed up after that. There was no amount of evidence that could get him to confess. His dispassionate attitude annoyed the detectives, but they felt confident in their case. The text thread was damning enough, but they'd also managed to connect almost every piece of physical evidence to Graham too. They'd also taken a DNA sample after his arrest, which was a match for some semen stains on Elaine's mattress. The trial wouldn't be a walk in the park, but they were hopeful that justice would prevail. As Graham sat in his cell, he worried over who might appear at the trial to testify against him. There was one woman who knew more about his dark impulses than anyone else, his old flame, Darcy. She had to be silenced. That December, 
Darcy received a Christmas card from all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. The name on the letter stopped her dead in her tracks. It wasn't just that she and Graham hadn't communicated in over three years. No, what worried her was that they had only ever spoken through email. She had never given him her home address. In the card, Graham claimed he was being blamed for the suicide of a woman he barely knew. But there was another unwritten message. He knew where she lived. And just as he'd done with Elaine, he might finally make good on his promise to end her life. But this move proved to be a fatal error for Graham. News of Elaine's murder investigation might never have reached Darcy all the way in Maine. But after receiving the letter, she reached out to the authorities and proved to be a key witness. The trial began in January 2015. By then, Graham had been detained for over a year. In a two-hour opening statement, the prosecution described Graham's plan to murder Elaine on Killikee Mountain and make her death look like suicide. It was the exact fantasy he'd spelled out in his stories. When Graham heard it all out loud, he became visibly uncomfortable. The courtroom was packed with onlookers and press, and the story of a BDSM relationship gone wrong was like catnip to the Irish public. As the salacious details of Graham and Elaine's dynamic came out, BDSM communities worldwide experienced a new wave of media attention. Not all of it good. There was a worry that Elaine's tragic story might result in a skewed perspective of BDSM. Sure enough, dozens of headlines referred to Graham as a sadomasochist, simplifying their relationship to that one buzzword. But as we discussed last time, her experiences with Graham were nothing more or less than a physically abusive relationship with a violent knife fetishist. Graham took advantage of the power dynamics of BDSM the same way he took advantage of Elaine's inexperience. By ignoring Elaine's consent and introducing real danger into their sessions, he had transported them to somewhere far beyond the bounds of BDSM. His crimes were abundantly clear to the jury. After nine agonizing weeks, they finally read their verdict aloud. Graham Dwyer was guilty of murder and would serve a mandatory life sentence in prison. He remains behind bars to this day. Graham thought Elaine was the perfect victim. He assumed that her death would be ruled a suicide, but he didn't realize how many people were in Elaine's corner. In trying to persuade her that she was alone and unloved, he'd convinced himself that he was totally untouchable. But he was wrong. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Graham Dwyer and Elaine O'Hara, Amongst the many sources we used, we found Almost the Perfect Murder by Paul Williams extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. 
Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Eric Stankey. Edited by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells. Fact-checked by Katherine Barner. Researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. And produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.